I'm not sure about you, but schooling never really came easy to me. Uh, when my friends seemed to be able just to sleep through class and get fantastic grades, I was the opposite. I had to work hard for good grades. I had to memorize and study and really pour into it. And I remember when I was in middle school, uh, we took what was called the pre-SATs. The pre-SATs, this test that helps you know how you measure up when it comes to taking the SAT college entrance exam. And by the way, I did not do well on the pre-SAT, nor the SAT, by the way, but that's not the point. But what the pre-SAT did was, is it was an appetizer. It was a warm-up for the real thing. When we get to Mark 13, Jesus is teaching on the end of the age, the end of the world. And he begins to describe things that are happening that are a warm-up to the end of the tribulation. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. As a faith family, we're walking through the gospel of Mark together. We're seeing Jesus on the move in this fast-paced, hard-hitting book. More than 40 times, the phrase immediately shows up in this gospel. We see where Mark goes from one teaching of Jesus to a miracle of Jesus, one after another after another. Chapters one through nine are broken up geographically. So the first half, chapters one through nine, are in the north, up in northern Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. Then you get to chapters 10 through 16, and they take place in the south, down near Judea and inside Jerusalem. In chapter 11, we see the triumphal entry where Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a humble donkey, the king of kings who humbles himself as a servant. We see throughout Passion Week, he's been going into the temple. He's been having debates with Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, teaching that he truly is the Messiah, he is God, come in the flesh. He rebukes them for their false teachings. And then we get to chapter 14, where it begins with one of his disciples who has country bumpkin in a big city moment. He's kind of like an aw gee willikers, look at these stones, look at these huge buildings. Jesus, do you see all that is happening here? And Jesus makes a shocking declaration in which he says, take note, all of these stones are coming down. This beautiful temple is going to be destroyed. And sure enough, as we saw last week, that in 70 AD, indeed, Rome came in and destroyed the temple. And then what's interesting, Jesus then makes a pivot. After he teaches in the text about the coming persecutions, the wars, rumors of wars, we see famine and all these natural disasters, Jesus pivots and he begins to talk about something so significant that it is shocking to read about even to this day. He points not only to the temple's destruction, but when he's with his disciples up on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, he begins to tell them about what is about to happen. Perhaps in this moment of verse 14, Jesus points across the Kidron Valley to the temple that is beaming in the afternoon sunlight. And he says this, Mark 13, verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. 
pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. As Jesus is days away from suffering and dying on the cross, he huddles up with his four closest disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He begins pointing to these false messiahs, these false prophets who are going to come in and try and woo God's people away from Christ. And he points to an even greater season of tribulation that is to come before the end. So what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? Well, I'll put this in your notes. I want you to take note of this. As followers of Jesus, we must first beware. Watch for the coming Antichrist. Jesus says, verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, it's interesting. What is the abomination of desolation? What does that mean? Well, that phrase shows up three times in the book of Daniel. In each of those times, it's pointing forward to something that is going to happen. The word abomination, it means it's offensive to God. Oftentimes the word abominable, you'll see it in the Old Testament, it's in reference to how God is offended typically by the idolatry of Israel. And then he takes the word abomination and he puts it with desolation. The word desolation, it means to desert to something, to abandon it, when something is in utter ruin. Well, Jesus connects the phrase from Daniel's Old Testament prophecy with terrible tribulation that's going to come in the future. Now, Israel already experienced this 200 years earlier. The first fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy happened in 167 BC, where a Syrian named Epiphanes, he leads an attack against Israel. He gets into the temple where he sacrifices a pig on the altar of burnt offerings, and then he sets up a statue, an altar to Zeus. Pigs at that time were considered an unclean animal and the Jews refused to go near the temple because of the idolatry. You see, Epiphany's actions so enraged the Jewish people that they revolted against him in what history calls the Maccabean Revolt. And I'll let you go read up on that on your own. Jesus here is telling Peter, James, John, and Andrew that verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, Okay, so when you see paganism taking place in the temple, when you see idolatry where it should not be, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, run for your lives. Well, this is what would happen 40 years later. For the second fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, it happened in 70 AD. We talked about this last week. When the Roman general Titus, he enters the temple, he attacks Israel and brought such atrocities, more than a million Jews were executed under his attack. The Romans entered the temple with their military flags and they set up them as objects of worship. Now, at that time, 
40 years after Jesus is saying this in Mark 13, many Christians were saved from this attack because they obeyed what Jesus is saying right here on the Mount of Olives. Now, what's interesting is running to the mountains for safety is the exact opposite of what the people used to do. Whenever there was an attack, people would flee to the city. They would hide behind the city walls where they could find protection. Well, here is the opposite. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see someone who has idolatry taking place in the temple, run for your life. Get out of Dodge. Head out to the mountains. It's interesting. The people of God who used to trust in those walls to protect them don't save them anymore. Why? Because the things of this world do not ultimately protect us. Only the Lord is our protector. Are you banking your safety and protection upon something other than the Lord? If So, may I encourage you to turn away from trusting in that thing, whether it's a military or a government or some sort of protection device. May I say, look to the Lord. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The Lord is your defender. The Lord is the one who fights for you. And one day he's going to return and he's going to rescue us and protect us forever. Well, he says, verse 15, that a man on the housetop needs to run down the outside deck staircase and not go back in for his valuables. Head for the hills. Get out of Dodge. Field workers, don't go back and run to your house and get your jacket that'll keep you warm at night. No, 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 no. You run. Get out as fast as you can. Go. Flee. Don't take any chances. Don't be like Lot's wife and look back. Flee to the mountains for safety. And it's going to be terrible, Jesus says, for pregnant women and moms with babies because it's going to be difficult to flee. Anybody here try to get to church on time with a newborn before? (laughs) It's exhausting. And can I just say for you parents, especially you single parents, I'm so proud of you. It is hard work gathering with God's people when you're tagging along little ones. But can I say it's important that you're here. It's good for your soul and it's good for their soul and for growth in the gospel. And so when you make it your mission to get here, I know that it is spiritual warfare on Sunday mornings, and there are so many speed bumps to you getting here. I just want to let you know I'm so proud of you. Good job. But here is Jesus saying, if you're pregnant, if you're a nursing mom, it's going to be really difficult. Because as hard as it is to get to church on a Sunday morning, imagine running for your life. And some of you guys may be thinking, well, I can run with the baby like a football. It doesn't work that way, guys, okay? But what Jesus is describing here is a terrible moment that is so awful. I know there are kids in the room, so I'm going to be very careful here. But the armies would do terrible things to babies. The armies would do terrible things to pregnant women. And Jesus is saying, get out as fast as you can. Run for your lives. When you see this being set up, you need to go. It's going to be terrible what's happening. He says, pray it won't happen in winter, verse 18. Why? Because during winter in Israel, the rivers and the ravines fill up with water, making it nearly impossible to cross to safety. You see, you get the picture here. It's utter chaos. 
Disaster and death await for those who wait too long. And yet as tragic as 167 BC was with Epiphanes, and as awful as it was in 70 AD with Titus, this is nothing in comparison with the end of the world. You ain't seen nothing yet. That's what we see here in the text. In verses five through 13, the readers are told that many deceivers will come, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, persecution, natural disasters, they all take place. Jesus says, verse seven, do not be troubled. Verse 11, do not be worried. Now in verse 14, the readers are told, run for your lives. When you see the abomination of desolation, when you see idolatry in the temple, it's time to get out of Judea. You see, this kind of destruction and terror will be so horrific that Jesus says, look at verse 19. The kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. What happened under Titus was a foreshadowing. It was a warm-up. It was a foretaste. It was an appetizer of what is to come. Jesus is describing the presence of such horror the world has never seen it before. Now, that's a shocking statement when you think about the atrocities all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. There's not a single person save Noah who is righteous on the earth. And we've seen it throughout our lives the atrocities of war, the extermination of people. So how do we think through this? How do we as followers of Jesus process these end times? And here's how I wanna shepherd our church through this. There are some dangers that we can face when it comes to studying the end times. One danger is to completely ignore it, to say, I'm not interested, I don't care, I'm just gonna stick with, you know, with me and Jesus and studying my word, but I'm not interested in the future. It's dangerous because God has revealed the future to us for our good and it's for his glory. So you might be aware of what is to come so we can't ignore it. The opposite end of of danger is that we start putting on the aluminum foil hats and rationing food and trying to bunker down, right? That's not how we're to live either. So how do we approach this? Well, one of the ways I wanna do this is through what I would call theological triage, Theological triage. Now, triage is something that some of you doctors and nurses are fully aware of, that when you go to the emergency room, there is a triage nurse. That nurse's job is to discern who gets treated first. Someone comes in with a paper cut, and then someone after them comes in with the gunshot wound. Who do you treat first? Well, you treat the gunshot wound. Well, we have to do the same thing when it comes to doctrine. We have to identify key things that we are going to hold fast to, and then what things are we going to hold open-handed. So here's where I would, I would take us on this. There are three levels of triage that I want us to consider. Level one is where we say this is what's most important. This is the gunshot wound. This are the things that we cannot neglect or back away from. And I would begin with the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three and four, for I proclaim to you as of what is first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's saying, if there's anything else I want you to get, it's this, it's the gospel, the death of Jesus. These are things we cannot compromise on. We cannot compromise on the cross. We cannot compromise on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. These are hills that we will die on. 
You cannot be a follower of Jesus if you do not affirm level one issues. These are things that we will take a bullet for. Things like the virgin birth. Things like the resurrection. Things like the depravity of man and the need for a savior. But then there's a second level that we need to consider when we think through things in regards to doctrinally, what do we hold fast to? In level two issue, we would put something like baptism. Baptism. Though we have other churches in our community who love Jesus and who affirm level one, we can call them brothers and sisters in Christ. We can lock arms with them in evangelism and in mission. But when it comes to a doctrine like baptism, we cannot be in the same local church together. They would say, well, we sprinkle or we pour. Well, as Baptists, we look at the scriptures and say, I don't think so. I mean, I love you, but we cannot lock arms in the local church together because this is a level two issue. Now, we definitely believe that we're going to heaven together. They affirm level one. But when it comes to level two, this is something in which we can't be in the same local church. Now, when we get to heaven, Jesus will let us know what he intended in his word, and you'll see that we were right. <laughs> but then you get here. Well, I would also add, I would add Lord's Supper. Okay, different groups. So level two, there's a third level. And this is where I would argue we need to put in times. It's the level three tertiary issues. I'll just put in times right here. I would put us right here as followers of Jesus Level one, non-negotiables. Level two, things that we affirm as a local church. Level three, things that we can just agree to disagree. You may have one stance and believe something when it comes to the end times, and I may have another, but we can just say, listen, we affirm level one, we affirm level two. Let's go to get coffee, let's wrestle through these issues, and then let's go out and start telling people about Jesus. Level three issues are not worth splitting a church over. Level three issues are not breaking friendships over. These are things in which we can learn from one another. There have been level three issues in which Christy and I, in our own marriage, we disagree on. And that's okay. We're, we're learning, we're discipling one another and saying, okay, and it's interesting, a lot of my views have changed in these level three end time issues. Now, for some of you, in just a moment, I'm gonna share with you one of my views when it comes to the end times. I could be wrong. I want you to know that. I don't think I am, but I could be. But I want you to know that where we fall on this, this is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. This is where we're gonna hold fast to the gospel, resurrection, virgin birth, non-negotiables. These are things that we can, we can learn from, we can encourage, but this is where we as a local church are gonna say, yeah, we're gonna lock arms here on issues like this. This is something that is tertiary. It's not ultimate. So I want you to pick up with me here in the text. In Mark 13, look at verse 14. It's interesting because Mark puts a parenthesis around the phrase, let the reader understand. What he's saying here in this message is that Jesus is teaching for future readers. Now remember the original audience of Mark's gospel. It's not Jews. It's first century Gentiles. Quite possibly, they're receiving this gospel at a time around where Titus is coming into Jerusalem. And he says, let the reader understand, meaning wake up. 
This is probably happening right here in your view. You are seeing what Jesus is telling you, Mark 13. He is showing you what is going to happen. But I would also argue that let the reader understand is for us as well. It's for 21st century Christians who are following Jesus in which we can see the words of Jesus in which he is instructing us of what is to come. And he's saying, wake up, pay attention. This is what is about to come your way. You see, there is coming a man of lawlessness who will exalt himself in the temple as God. Kenneth, what are you talking about? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says this, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. All right, let's cut to the chase. The abomination of desolation is the Antichrist coming at the end of the world. This Antichrist will unleash such a terrible and severe tribulation on the people of God. The Antichrist, who is the abomination of desolation, who is standing, verse 14, where he does not belong in the temple. You see, there's, there's a coming desolation that AD 70 and what Titus did is actually pointing forward to something that is even greater, something far more significant. So we're, here's, here's where I land on this. I believe that we as believers will go through the tribulation. And the way I get that is I see all throughout the New Testament a thrust and a thread woven throughout the scriptures that continually says, persevere, endure suffering, be prepared to deal with hardship, endure it. I don't see this where we are a pre-tribulation where we, before the tribulation, we are taken out of the world before things get bad. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I see this call in which we have to be prepared to endure suffering. You see this idea of a pre-trib rapture of being taken out of the world before things get bad, gets bad is an American idea. It's something that is a fairly recent new in regards to church history idea. And I don't think our Asian brothers and sisters would agree with that. Because you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Losing property, losing jobs, losing your own life, that is the norm for many of them. And this idea of escaping suffering is a foreign concept. But for us as followers of Jesus, if he returns before the tribulation and I'm wrong, you can come up and tell me. But I think we need to take on the mindset of being prepared to endure suffering. To train ourselves for the day that when someone does put the gun in your face and says, renounce Christ, you say, no, I follow Jesus. Here I stand. I can do no other. As followers of Jesus, we need to be prepared for the day where 
the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist goes into the temple and the question is, are we gonna renounce Christ or are we going to stand firm? Are we gonna be willing to endure difficulty and suffering and strife or are we gonna back away? That's a decision you've gotta make before you get into the moment. You see, you don't need to start thinking, oh, I'll die for Christ when you're not living for Christ now. Following Jesus is a call to endure difficulty and suffering and trial. And so this 70 AD moment is only pointing forward to something that's even worse that is to come. So let me kind of explain it this way for you football crazies. It's kind of like what Titus is doing in 70 AD is the scout team. They're showing what it's going to look like on the last day. There's huge devastation. My vocabulary is so weak in comparison to describing the atrocities of what took place in Israel during those days. When Christy and I were over in Israel a couple of years ago, we were talking with our guide and asking him questions, and he lacked the vocabulary to describe the atrocities and the horror of what happened during that time. And what Jesus here is pointing forward to is an even worse day. A terrible day in which AD 70 is just a warm-up of what is to come. So how do we respond as followers of Jesus? Well, it's number two. Let's be encouraged. God will protect his elect. God will protect his elect. Look at verse 20. The Lord will cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. You see, the horror of tribulation and suffering at the end of the world, it's not forever. It's not permanent. In God's kindness, the Lord places a divine limitation on the length of the tribulation. God will cut it short for the sake of the elect, God's chosen people, those whom he has chosen for himself. Okay, that phrase election or elect, what are we talking about here? You see, the elect are God's chosen people who have believed upon God's chosen son, Jesus. Now, election is all throughout the Bible. We see it where God elects, he chooses Israel through which this nation would come forth a Messiah, Jesus, where God calls and sets apart a people for himself. Now, in our American Christian culture, we have made this idea of election very controversial when it should not be. But the reality is this. If your idea of election makes you arrogant, you don't understand it. This idea of being chosen by God should not lead to swagger. It needs to lead to humility. Anyone who, whose theology makes them prideful needs to change their theology. You see, a right understanding is that God, who is so kind, chose for himself a people from before the foundations of the earth. Why? Because we deserve it? No. Because we earned it? No. It's only because of his mercy and grace. We see in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, for he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Paul says, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, God has 
chosen you for salvation. In 1 Peter 1, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see, because of God's great love for his chosen people, he will not allow the tribulation and suffering to endure permanently. There's coming a time in which the Lord is going to blow the whistle and everybody gets to get out of the pool. And though we, from my perspective, will not be spared from temporary earthly suffering, he will spare us from eternal suffering that is permanent. God preserves us. God keeps us all the way to the end. I love how Jesus said this in John 10. He said, I know my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. As we endure tribulation, as we endure trial and hardship, as we watch and as we pray, let us remember this. The devil and the Antichrist can never snatch the elect from the omnipotent grip of Jesus. God will keep you. God will preserve you. He will hold on to you. He is the one who promised you in Matthew 28, I will never leave you and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Never will I forsake you. Never will I abandon you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We have a savior who promises to keep us even to the end of the age. We have a God who protects his elect. And you can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So be encouraged. God will protect his elect. But thirdly, let's be steadfast. False messiahs will try to lead you astray. Jesus then gives a warning regarding this tribulational season that these false messiahs, these false prophets are gonna try and lead you astray. They're gonna perform signs and wonders. They're gonna amaze and awe the crowds. Jesus commands you, verse 21, do not believe it. Don't you dare take the bait. Even if thousands flock to their gatherings even if their books are bestsellers, even if they get millions of likes on their social media posts, do not buy what they are selling. Don't be looking for those who are trying to be popular. Verse 21, see, here's the Messiah. There he is, the one we've been looking for. Jesus, don't fall for it. You see, in the kingdom of Christ, popularity does not always equal faithfulness. You see, there is one Messiah and his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Jesus is warning about these false messiahs, these false prophets who are popular and the crowds go after them and they are following their teaching and Jesus says, don't you dare go for them. It's interesting. There's a difference between drawing a crowd and building a church. Huge difference. It's interesting that whenever the crowds got big, when you read your Bible, note how often he tries to send them away with a hard teaching. As the crowds were, were getting bigger and bigger, he says, okay, I want you to go abandon all that you have and then come follow me. 
In John 6, you get the people who love Jesus so much. He's, he's, he's fed the 5,000. They got full bellies. He's performed this miracle. It's dinner and a show. And thousands of people are like, we love Jesus. And he says, okay, if you're gonna follow me, I want you to drink my blood and eat my flesh. Uh, what? I'm not so sure about this. You see, whenever there's a large crowd, Jesus brings a hard teaching. He says, are you gonna stay with me to the end? You see, this false messiahs, these false prophets, they're gonna draw a crowd. The question is, are you gonna go after them? Are you gonna be one who does what they say, who, who supports and applauds and says, you know, Jesus, you were cool and all, but this guy, is that gonna be you? Will you walk away? It's interesting. When Jesus tells his disciples after John 6, all these thousands of people, John 6, verse 66, one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible, and from then on, many no longer followed him. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you guys gonna leave too? Simon Peter, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. Where else are we gonna go, Jesus? You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're the one who is coming into the world. And so y'all, when you're tempted to go after false messiahs, when you're tempted to follow these false prophets who try to coax you away from Jesus, they try to tempt you away from the gospel, they try to sway you away from the one who first loved you, be steadfast in the faith. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. You see, these false teachers with all that they've got, look at verse 22, if possible, these false messiahs are gonna try and draw you away from Jesus. But hear me on this. When you examine every teaching through the filter of scripture, you can sniff out a false prophet. If someone begins teaching and saying something that contradicts scripture, you can go, that's incorrect. That's false. Because I, I know my Bible. Y'all, we gotta be a people of our Bible which we love this book, we study this book, we memorize this book, we meditate on this book. This is what protects us. And as you abide in Jesus, as you remain in Jesus, he remains with you. Jesus will hold you fast as you endure and remain in him. You see, Jesus will preserve you as you persevere in him. You're being held by Jesus he will keep you as you abide in him. Our God is good. And he is enabling you by the power of the Holy Spirit to remain in Jesus all the way across the finish line. But Kenneth, what about those people who walk away? What about those people who no longer follow Jesus? You see, right now, it's really popular on Instagram to post up your deconversion story. How you walked away from the church, how you walked away from Jesus. It's really popular. You get lots of likes. What about them? I think for those who do not remain in Jesus, they didn't know Jesus in the first place. Jesus did not fail them. They just didn't know him. Maybe they believed the promises of Jesus but didn't want Jesus himself. Or they wanted this idea of God but did not want to humble themselves and submit and follow Christ. What about you? Are you gonna walk away from Jesus? 
This is one of the most heartbreaking parts of being a follower of Jesus is seeing people you know and love. And I say this brokenheartedly because I know many of you have someone in your life whom you love who has walked away. And it hurts my heart. And so until they take their last breath, they've got hope, we've got hope, we pray. Keep getting on your face. Keep praying for them. Keep encouraging them. Keep holding up Jesus. Keep modeling that your happiness is beyond the reach of this world. Keep pointing to Jesus as the one who satisfies. You keep laboring and longing for your children and grandchildren, spouses, friends, co-workers, that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. You keep praying. You keep laboring. You keep following hard after Christ. You see, for those who walk away, this has been happening ever since the early church. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, there's coming a day in which these false prophets, these false messiahs, they're going to come on the scene. They're going to perform signs and miracles and wow the crowds. They're going to try and lead believers astray. The Antichrist is going to do such scandalous actions that's going to trigger the Lord's return. So what is Jesus calling us to do? What's your impact point? And it's this. Be watchful. As the day draws near and keep your eyes on Jesus. In verse 23, Jesus says, and you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You're gonna be tempted by this world and by your flesh to take your eyes off of Christ. I implore you, fix your eyes on Jesus. You remain steadfast with him. As persecution and suffering come knocking on your door, you answer with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That nothing that man can do to you is greater than the one who is in you. You have him who was died and buried and raised and is risen and is seated at the right hand of God. He is a soon returning king who is coming back for his church. You remain steadfast and faithful. You cling tight to Jesus because he's clinging tight to you. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That the one who loves you and died for you is the one who is gonna keep you all the way to the end. What about the Antichrist? I've got some good news. I've read the end of the Bible. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. As the false prophets, as the Antichrist, as the devil himself rise up to do battle against the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be riding behind him on white horses, clothed in white robes, ready to pull out our swords to do battle. And Jesus will say, put it away, boys. This one's mine. And with the sound of his voice, with just the breath of his mouth, they'll be done away with. You read the end of the Bible, we win.
Until then, you keep your eyes on Jesus. Come what may in your life. Suffering, persecution, pain, chaos. We have Jesus who experienced all of the suffering and pain and chaos that we deserved at the cross. And it is there that through his suffering, he brings blessing. Through his chaos, he brings order. Through his own personal rage that he experienced against him, we now experience his perfect peace. That's us. That's the end of the world. And I feel fine.